Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. In today's episode of the podcast, I speak with my dear friend, Jeff Shocks. Jeff has an amazing background. He's a patent attorney, a venture capitalist, and now a philanthropist. He and I have had the benefit of knowing each other for over 15 years. We've been in EO Forum together and just shared so many different experiences. Just really excited to be able to have a great conversation with him and share some of his wisdom around patent strategy, the future of autonomous vehicles, uh, the importance of founder-based philanthropy, and many other topics. Now, on with the podcast. Jeff, welcome to the Growth Pioneers podcast. Thank you. Super excited to be here, Doug. Oh, it's it's such a pleasure to spend this time this afternoon with you. I'm such a dear friend, and we've known each other for such a long time. It's just a real honor to be able to um, share with the audience your wisdom. You know, had a window seat to all the things that you've created over the past 15 years. And it's just like I said, it's just a real honor to be able to share that with my audience. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Be happy to. Uh, grew up in the Midwest, uh, just outside of Detroit. Both my parents were automotive engineers. Thought I would be an automotive engineer when I grew up. I uh, went to Michigan undergrad, was a gearhead, studied mechanical engineering, worked at General Motors, worked at the elect- on the electric vehicle way back when in the 90s, and then realized that wasn't for me. I wanted to have a more kind of individual impact. I felt like a very I was lost in a really big company like, like General Motors. And honestly, like I was a little bit adrift. And one of my mentors said, hey, I have a buddy who's a patent attorney. Why don't you go shadow them? And I shadowed them for a couple of days and their position, their job, like what they did, their role was just super, super fascinating to me. I ended up applying to law school and went out to uh, Washington, D.C. to study patent law. And I worked in a patent firm during the day, uh, went to law school at night, came back to the Michigan area after I graduated, uh, worked in a couple of really big firms for about five or six years, and then decided that I loved what I did. I just wasn't crazy about who I worked with or worked for. And so I started my own firm. There wasn't anything that like really was embedded in me as an entrepreneur, like that I knew that I was going to own my own thing someday. That just wasn't me. I know that a lot of entrepreneurs like know that from the very beginning, that wasn't me. Um, but I felt compelled. I knew that I could do something better. And I knew that there was a particular type of client that I wanted to serve. And so I started my own firm. That was about 18 years ago. My wife and I moved from Ann Arbor, Michigan to San Francisco, kind of the, one of the hubs of, of startups in the world. And after about seven or eight years, we became a overnight success. And um, as you do. And Along the way, I picked up a couple of interesting skills as I you know, became closer and closer to kind of leadership decisions and patent strategy. I started to really think carefully about like how do, how do we meet the goals of a company and what are those and what are the value propositions and what's different about a particular company. And so I went from like what is unique and different about inventions to what's unique and different about technology stacks to like what's unique and different about companies. And that particular trend kind of allowed me to see this opportunity of investing in our clients. And when we became an overnight success, I needed that skill. We were inundated by hundreds of of startups on on an annual basis, and I needed to pick a dozen of who was going to be a client. And so, you know, I, I took this opportunity to pick clients that we believed in and that I thought were going to do something incredibly special. We've gotten lucky over the years. You know, there is a Twilio and an Amada and a Duo, a Cruise and Joby, and of course, uh, recently Coinbase. 
And so we've gotten lucky and kind of honored to work with some great companies. That kind of brings me brings me to here. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's been such an interesting journey to watch you go from patent attorney by day to sort of venture capitalist by night and now and philanthropist. Talk to me a little bit about kind of the early days of patent law. I mean, one of the things that I always appreciated about your thoughts about patent laws contrasted to what I saw at some of our you know, local patent attorneys here was really thinking about patents as a valuation, like the strategy around patents and fundraising. I think this is a a pretty advanced topic, (laughs) probably not necessarily for the Bay Area, but for some of these other ecosystems. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think most patent attorneys, and by most, I mean, probably 90, 95%, they work in a large law firm, and they have large clients. And those large clients have their own internal department of like, how do you mine for inventions? How do you think about those? How do you capture them? Do you fill out forms? Do you have committees? And then they bounce into a patent attorney. And the patent attorney is just meant to like write that one particular patent application. Maybe that's one of a hundred, one of a thousand that's filed that year. When you shrink that down to a startup, it doesn't scale down very well. Because when you scale that down to about four or eight a year or two or three a year, there's no committee on the startup side, there's 15 people working over there and they all have their heads, you know, their hairs on fire. And so there's no one there. There's no form. There's no committee. There's nothing to be able to pick patent strategy. And that was the opportunity and the challenge that I saw was like, how do I embed us in those startups so that we are part of that, basically that leadership table and we interact with the CFO of this is, you know, this is how much we think this is going to cost for this year. Does this make sense from a budget standpoint? What are the milestones for fundraising? What things can we file now? What should we delay until after fundraising? And so it's a huge part of finance. You know, you think of a Fortune 500 company and you never have to worry about these issues, but you want to be able to file certain things before fundraising to kind of polish the company. And you want to delay other things until after fundraising because they're expensive. And so timing is a huge part of it. We interact with the CEO and say, like, where is really this company going? What's the value proposition? Why are we doing this? And um, there's 50 ideas here. How do we pick six? you know, to go forward with this year. And often if you let the engineers decide, you pick the wrong ones. You know, it's you pick something that they worked on last week instead of something that they worked on months ago and have moved on that might have been more valuable. And so you start, we start with the top down of just like, what's really, where's this company really going? With Joby, it was all about like, how do you make something safe as it flies through the air? How do you make it quiet so it could land in our cities? And how do you make onboarding and in-flight travel faster so that the throughput of this air taxi can be greater? And so, you know, we reduced the company down to those three words, but those three words allowed us to be able to say across the engineering team, if this thing doesn't help with safety or it doesn't help with sound or it doesn't help with speed, then we need to ignore it and move on to the other inventions. And so that that piece was like this important piece at the kind of leadership table that we played a role in. Which is, you know, you, you become an extension of, you know, the executive team of the, of the company at that stage. And yet you have a business model that's different than a lot of lawyers as well, right? You don't, you're not a per hour, you kind of work on a fixed fee. So I mean, you're providing high value service at a fixed fee. So how, do, how does that work? Yeah. And so what I wanted to do the, the entire time when I created the fixed fee was just to to align incentives and to be able to say, look, we're not 
incentivized just to build a bigger patent application so that we could build more hours. We truly want to be thought of and kind of evaluated just based on the success that the portfolio has. And so did we pick the right inventions? Did we get them across the finish line? Did we build a portfolio that adds value? Did we build a portfolio that deters other companies from suing our clients? Those are the things that we want to ultimately be kind of graded on and evaluated on. And so internally, I wanted people to be excited about the clients and also excited about the project and to be able to say, this is how much time you get and this is how much the client is willing to pay for our flat rate. Yeah, which is great. I mean, I, that, you know, the idea of aligned incentives is so critical in the early stages of the company. You know, they're so fragile. And if, you know, if someone doesn't come in with the best interest of the entrepreneur in mind, even if it's not nefarious, it can really set the company at a disadvantage. And I really appreciate your approach there. And I've got to imagine, you know, what you said before about being, you know, an overnight success, you know, after seven years and being inundated, you know, at some point you also started making investments in these companies, which is, feels like just an extension of that incentive alignment. Did you always plan to invest in your clients or... No, honestly, it was in the beginning, it was just out of necessity. And during the period where I was growing the firm and building a reputation, we often had a bunch of clients that came to us that couldn't afford us. We were cheap. We were like the cheapest firm you could go to and they still couldn't afford us. They were not great startups and they offered equity. And every single one of those equity stakes that I got went to zero. I mean, not like, oh, I got one X back. Like it went to flat out zero. It could have gone negative, you know, if that was like physically possible. They were the worst investments I've ever made. And that whole process kind of made me think about, well, maybe I'm just accepting this equity stake, you know, as kind of like a cost of doing business or business development and not really thinking of it as an investor. And so I said, what what if I split this and we no longer do um, any work on an equity stake or we do sweat equity, whatever you want to call that. But what if we said, look, we're going to do your patent work. You're going to pay us in cash. And we're also going to dip into our bank account and invest our cash into you. Those things might end up canceling it out. Like you might take that cash and turn around and giving some of that back to us over the next couple of years. But we're going to invest on other investors terms and you know, be an investor. And that act of doing that and writing those checks, which was super painful, um, and writing out those checks made me start thinking way more like an investor. And then so Twilio was one of our first. We obviously got very fortunate with the way that that one worked out. We were the first investor in Twilio. And, you know, others along, you know, we got to see things really early. I often joke with other people that we see companies like negative two months old. You know, they haven't even been formed yet. And like we get to talk with them. And so we're often the very first investor that a lot of our startups have. Yeah, which is which is very powerful. I bet imagine that changes the criteria as you continue to evolve your client base. I mean, obviously your ability to invest in them also changes who you work with. Real quick aside though, I just want to point out the Twilio story. Jeff and I were on a volcano at five o'clock in the morning, Hawaii time when the Twilio went public. On, the when they rang the bell. Looking at it through Periscope at the rest area at 10,000 feet, which was probably one of the kind of amazing highlight moments. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's like epic, like top three moments ever of just like, here it is, like one of my, my favorite groups ever of advisors that have kind of helped me build the firm to this place. And then here's this you know first investment of mine that had this massive exit um, in what was otherwise an IPO drought. Um, yeah, that whole thing and being on a mountain and the sunrise, like that was... That was epic. 
It was epic. I don't think we made you pay for dinner that night, even though we probably should have. <laughs> you should have. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. I, we'll, 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 we're getting it all back in some, you know, in, in wisdom, I guess. As you started writing checks, you know, obviously it's, that's a very powerful experience to, to give over your hard-earned money to startups. How has that, that changed who you work with or how has that changed your thought process around who you work with? Yeah, it's a couple. You know, so it's a couple interesting things there. Like you, you start to develop this kind of thesis and kind of a mission of just like, what are you going to invest in? What are you not? At some point and at some level, I realized, all right. So if there's two or three or four or five hundred startups coming to us on an annual basis, and we're picking a dozen to work with, or you know, fifteen, twenty to work with on an annual basis, how do we choose? What is that filter? And we started thinking a lot about like, what impact do we want to make in the world and what do we want to be associated with what do we want our brand of like being part of like what do i want my name on literally and so like those were the things that you know i come from detroit and so there's a lot of things that i saw like in the transportation industry that were changing you know we can make our roads incredibly safer we can make our transportation incredibly cleaner and we can make transportation more accessible to others and so i saw this wave coming and so a lot of the companies that we took on over the last decade have been in transportation we do a lot in health and we do a lot in software but you know it's a lot of in transportation and in fact that snowball i kind of like continued to grow and that momentum grew we ended up doing cruises work and i was an early investor in cruise so one of my my good friends, Riley Brennan, who I'd known for almost two decades, approached me and said, look, you know, like, what if we created a venture fund in transportation? And we did exactly this thing, which is like, how do we make transportation safer and cleaner and more accessible? And that whole mission resonated super strongly with me. And I knew that there was this kind of moment in time where transportation was going through this incredible change. I mean, this is a trillion, trillion dollar you know, type of industry that was going through this like once in a lifetime type of change. And we didn't see many investors in that space. And we knew that this was a good thing for, for the world and society. And we knew that we could help empower early stage um, entrepreneurs and kind of give them, um, you know, a, enough cash to kind of make it to the next round. And that was exactly what we ended up doing. Well, so Trucks was Trucks.VC, you know, your your fund for autonomous vehicles was really born out of your expertise or what you're seeing in the market at, from your law practice. So it really did dovetail directly out of your experience working with clients. Yes. And so, I mean, that was, that was a big part of Riley and, and, and he saw that vision. Um, but I had this idea that we would be surrounded by a couple of venture funds that have particular themes. And this one was the first one. I had just thought that we would do fund one and be done. But it was a, a great success and we were having a heck of a lot of fun and I kept on learning. Um, and so that was like kind of the learning piece that was intriguing me. And so we, we raised a first fund at, at 20 million and we went out and just closed our second fund at 50. Yeah, congratulations. I, you know, in full disclosure, I'm an LP in the first fund, so I, I'm, our incentives are aligned for your success. Um, I do have a question though about your your firm. I mean, you know, you have 200 to 500 companies coming after you. You know, the one to work with you every year, and you pick 12. I mean, that's a decision point. Like, why not scale your business to like a massive law firm? There had to be a choice behind why you did that, and so I'm curious, why stick with 12 clients? I mean, as you know, because you've, you've known me now for a decade and I've kind of gone through this and struggled with this, professional service companies don't scale very well. And 
I realized that if I continued to kind of scale and we're, we're up to about a dozen um, folks on the team, and if we got up to like 40 or 50 or 60 or 100, um, that I wouldn't ever be in actually interacting with our clients at all, that I would be managing other people that did that. And frankly, at, a, uh, at some level, I just flat out enjoyed that. And I wanted to be a part of that. And I wanted to be able to have, you know, the entire team, you know, obey the two pizza rule. And I wanted to build something that felt more like a, a kind of family size as opposed to a corporation size. And so I never had intended to build a, a juggernaut. We ended up building something of a kind of a premium boutique. Um, there's times where I get frustrated that I, I wish that we were you know, much larger and we could take on a, a client or two that honestly is just too big for us. Um, and there's times where uh, the inflow of potential great clients would suggest that it'd be great, you know, better if we had a bigger size. But then there's other times when I realize that I'm still involved in certain projects and still involved in patent strategy that I just simply wouldn't be if we were 10 times the size. Yeah. Well, you just have a level of discernment that I don't have. Like, I think I'd have too much FOMO to pass up all these really interesting opportunities. But no, I, I appreciate your intentionality in what you've created and the discernment, even in the, I know over the years you've struggled with this, but what I have seen from the outside looking in is you keep the quality exceedingly high. You keep that family feel and it obviously hasn't impacted your success in any way. I mean, you've been wildly successful. And so I, I think it just reminds me about, you know, being clear about your intention and then staying true to that. Plus, I have to say, I think you may not look at it this way, but I've always looked at the business model that you've created as like the first regenerative business model, just in the way that you find talent, how you know you nurture talent, how they go out into the world, start companies, and then you invest in them. So you have this like amazing ecosystem, the Shocks ecosystem, which I really think is this regenerative business model. No, I got really lucky with that. And so when I was about a fourth, fifth year in a big law firm, and I was struggling, kind of languishing a little bit of just like not feeling motivated, don't, didn't have a purpose. Like we were literally like trying to file like this thousandth patent application for a client. And, you know, that and it was something where I ended up throwing a bunch of spaghetti on the wall and kind of seeing what stuck. And it, I went back to school and got a master's degree in electrical engineering. I started teaching patent law um, at that same university, which was super confusing for them that I was teaching and taking classes. Um, and I started my own firm. And it was wonderful because like the, the firm just needed me like five, 10 hours a week because I just started it. And so it was great that I had these two other jobs of teaching and taking classes. But what it ended up is that I, I had some amazing teachers uh, during my master's program. And so my wife, Kate, was also during that same time teaching. And she was getting her educational degree also at Michigan and then um, started to, to teach and do her. I can't remember what that's called, the, the first year or two when you're doing um, teaching. It was basically kind of like the apprentice model. And and so I was kind of surrounded by this concept of education and I was super inspired. And so I took all of that and poured it into the classes that I was teaching and I loved it. You know, one of my, my skills is to take something incredibly complicated and put it into language that other, you know, to meet other people in the language and the place that they are. And so taking patent law, which most patent attorneys love the fact that it's like this black box that like people can't understand. And I just ripped open the box and said, like, this is how it works. And I'm going to use words that you understand. And I'm going to explain it in a way that you now can leverage patent law for your own you know, entrepreneurial endeavors. And I loved that part. And then at the end of the class, I think it was my second class, 
I, I was my first year, I taught 40 students, the second year, 80. And one of the students came up to me and she said, you know, I'm, I'm moving out to the West Coast. And you said in your last class that you're moving to San Francisco. Can I come work for you? And I was just like, like, what, what? And I had no intention that like me teaching was going to be recruiting. It's just something that I love to do. But of course, it was perfect. And so I was teaching at great engineering schools. I started at Michigan and then I went over to Stanford. And here are students that couldn't find the right place for themselves and kind of a particular engineering path. And so they were looking for something different. And I offered up patent law to them and they understood it. And those that rose to the top and did incredibly well, I said, hey, do you want to come work with me? And I ended up building all the team that I have, like, based on that model. Had I set out to do that, I probably would have failed. But the fact that I set out to teach and I love to teach, I kind of opened that opportunity. Yeah, which is beautiful. I mean, I love that. So you teaching patent law for engineers at some of the top universities, you get to pick the best students at the top, they come work for you. And at some point, you know, you nurture them and they don't stay with your firm forever. And then what do they do? They go out into the world and start companies. And who do you think they come talk to about patent work? <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's worked out. And then, you know, now with some success, now you have the fund. I mean, it's just, I, I just have always appreciated that model. It's just this beautiful closed loop system. And it enables this, you know, family perfect sized firm to do really great work and to amplify your impact. So I'm sure that, you know, you have lots of mini Jeffs, although I'm, you know, they're all your own unique people out in the world. They've all been influenced and educated by you out there doing great work. So I, I think it's such a cool model. Thank you, Doug. Let's go back to truck. So, you know, you, you know, growing up in Detroit, you were the first person to get me to go to Michigan. So we did a retreat one time and we went to Detroit. And my view of Detroit was kind of this broken city, kind of rebuilding, you know, I had no idea what to really think of it. And then we went up there and what, what was the name of the school, the, the art school that we went to? We went to Cranbrook. Cranbrook. Magical place. Oh, it was magical. And I guess when I was there, it dawned on me. I think you may have said this to me. It was the Silicon Valley of its day. And it really shocked me. Like, that was a really big epiphany. And so it not only told me a lot about who you are and kind of showed me what you grew up in, but it was just a really inspiring. So I really appreciate you taking me there. It was just, you know... I, I love that that's part of your your story and how you're bringing that ethos into your investments. So let's talk a little bit more about, you know, the trucks fund. What's the what's the real thesis? What do you what do you see is going to go on in transportation over the next 10 to 15 years? When we started to raise the fund, which was back in 2014, and we started to talk to, with others about, hey, cars will be autonomous. And people said, not in my lifetime. You know, this is 40, 50, 60 years away. And they still could be right. We'll, we'll see. Um, but it was our thesis that it was probably closer to like seven to 10 years away. And that the technologies that we were building right now today was actually going to make that the make autonomy happen. And autonomy definitely has a dark side to it. You know, we may be um, taking taxi cab drivers out. We may be taking truck drivers out of the trucks. Um, but we also have road accidents as being like one of the top five killers across 
across the world. And so I saw a lot of what was happening in transportation as is mostly a health crisis and something that we could solve. I mean, if you had cameras all the way around your car, you're just not going to get into accidents. You know, there won't be blind spots for computers and they'll be able to know exactly where there are and cars will talk to each other to know exactly where they are. They'll be able to see bikers on the road so much easier because you can see 360. Um, and so there were so many things that I saw that was like just going to happen. Um, being able to have a front row seat to cruise was a huge piece of that vision. But we also saw like just some of the companies that were coming out of Stanford and my partner Riley and his position there um, just saw some of the technologies. But we also saw this huge gap, this, this enormous um, chasm that like no one in Silicon Valley as a venture capitalist wanted to touch automotive. And honestly, for good reason, because of the eight-year cycles that automotive has, um, you just couldn't make a, a startup work. But there was something that was happening that was completely shifting off all of that. A big part of this was, of course, Elon and Tesla. But there was a huge piece that was also happening that was like we were seeing it all around the transportation kind of ecosystem that every single piece of it was getting eaten by software and also you know, radically changing. And so we wanted to go out and meet that. We wanted, to, we, you know, when we swam out to that wave, Honestly, most people thought we were crazy. And this is probably the fourth or fifth time in my life that like I experienced that where like I had to have moments of just like sitting myself down and be like, okay, everyone that I view as smarter than me is telling me that I'm crazy. Am I crazy? And so this was something that like was was very challenging. And Riley and I continued to swim out to that wave and we were there very, very early on. We were able to build a brand around we are the, the leading seed stage transportation venture fund. And, you know, the, the brand now means something. You know, when we make investments, other venture funds jump in. When we're looking at things, other venture funds jump in and steal them from us because like, hey, like we got a term sheet from trucks or they're digging in. And so it's interesting how the challenges arise like as a venture fund. We could talk about that for hours. But I, I think that the, the evolution and kind of what I've learned on the venture side has been phenomenal. And I've been able to kind of take that back. Um, you know, to the patent firm and just be like, how do we choose startups to work with and how do we choose startups to invest in? And so been splitting my time probably you know, between the two, you know, the venture fund and the law firm for a while. I have great partners on both sides that have been able to help me with that. And it's worked out incredibly well. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I'm a really, it's been fun to be along for the ride. And I have to say, you know, I don't think that you were mentioning your thoughts of being crazy when I was investing, although I would have followed <laughs> you either way. That's not, that doesn't make for a very good pitch. No, no, that's okay. But um, I think most entrepreneurs can probably relate to this idea of like going to talk to a bunch of people and having this vision and a lot of smart people telling them no, or they're crazy, and then being convicted and pushing through. I mean, and sometimes they are crazy, you know, that's whatever. But, you know, I remember in the paddleboard business, we went to the first surf expo and we had something that looked so different. And they were like, good luck with that, bro. And a year later, they're like, how did you sell more paddleboards in Chicago? than you did in California. And sometimes you just have insight. And um, yeah, so I, I, think, I, just... I think that's actually like an important word. And, and I, I come back to it a lot. And in fact, whenever we're meeting a startup for the first time, that's exactly the thing that I ask for. Like, what's the insight that brought you here today? Like, what's the insight that like brought the company together? And an insight is like based on experience, it's based on background, it's based on like um, your own perception of the world. Um, and it's something that's not 
necessarily shared by others. And whether that's counterintuitive or exactly counter to, to what other people believe, like that's something that we're looking for as investors. And when we created the fund, that's exactly what it was. It felt like it was the wrong time to most people. Until after we raised it and everyone was like, oh, yeah, that was perfect timing. Um, but we didn't get that kind of satisfaction until a couple of years later after we did it. Yeah. You know, now that the markets, I don't know, is a market, I would imagine it's a little bit more mature. You know, you raised the second fund. What's different? You think just more people are seeing the potential or have there been more enough successes? What, like what shifted in those few years? Yeah, I mean, you, there's now a couple of incredible transportation companies with incredibly outsized um, returns on those investments, and whether that's an Uber or Lyft. And, you know, we're super excited to be part of Cruise and Autonomy and Joby. I mean, these are all multi, multi billion dollar companies. And then there's quite a few that are out there you know, that were still on their trajectory to be billion dollar companies like a Gaddock or a May. And so, yeah, these are in some ways, I mean, it's not too hard to imagine, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now that General Motors is a Nokia and Tesla is an Apple iPhone and that those companies like might not exist. And as radical as that idea is, like they fear that they see that that is a potential. They're stuck in an old model where they have to sell to dealerships. They don't even sell to consumers. Tesla is able to just leapfrog way over that with a company that they don't have to make money on repairs. I mean, the model is just so radically different. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's funny you bring up Tesla. I mean, Tesla has been such a huge impact, had such a huge impact on Reno. It was, you know, one of these unbelievably amazing deals that came through and has helped transform our ecosystem. I mean, there was a lot that had come in before that. We had a hundred companies come in, but nothing with the cachet and nothing with the vision like Tesla. And it's been remarkable to watch that and just see not only, I mean, the wealth creation that's happened in our community, which was not something that was easy to do before, and just to be part of something that is just so world changing. It's just, it's been so fun for me. I, you know, I did actually have to wash my hand after I shook Elon's at the big closing event, but it's still to this day is one of those like top five moments of being part of that. And I guess, you know, you can start to see it really struck a chord for me when GM announced that they were going to go all electric by 2035. I don't know the exact dates, but you just saw the impact. Impact. I'm sure that would not have happened had it not been for Tesla. And you can see the power of how a startup can radically shift a, an entire industry. Yeah, I mean, just looking at numbers, I mean, Tesla is like has a market cap that dwarfs basically all of the other internal combustion engine based car companies combined. And so, I mean, just that of just like, oh, I guess that's where the stock market, that's where investors are telling us to put money is is in electric. And I don't know if those companies would have gotten there uh, without Tesla. And so, I mean, you think about people that are making a dent in the universe, like Elon's doing it. Oh, for sure. And it's so amazing how many components or how many different areas it affects. I mean, I know you guys are invested in companies that are cruise, but there's a lot of other people that make really amazing technology that fits into this. So there's a whole supply chain of innovation that's coming out of it. You know, what are you, you sort of you sort of backed off this this think thinking that autonomy was going to take over in seven years. I mean, we were talking about exponential growth and you're like, just do the math. I was like, okay, okay. But you know, where do you sit today? What do you, you know, what's your prediction on where autonomy is going to be or 
They've been two years away for about five years now, six years now. Maybe we're only one year away and maybe we'll be one year away for the next three or four years. It's really hard. I mean, you could I, I see the cars going around San Francisco. You know, it feels like at times there's more um, cruise cars and Waymo cars than there are regular cars. And then so like it's all the time that we see them. But I think that they have, it's a challenge because I think that one of, one of the bigger challenges that I see is that they're going to be held to such a high standard. I suspect they're already better than the average driver, but that's not going to be good enough. When the average driver gets into an accident and a, a f- fatality occurs, like we understand that, that like we're humans and sometimes mistakes and accidents happen. We call it an accident. But when autonomous vehicle gets into an accident and the fatality occurs, we're not going to want that as a society. And so the standard that we're going to hold them to is going to be so much higher. And whether you're getting from 99.99 to 99.999 isn't just a little bit. It's a lot, a lot of work. Because it's basically trying to remove edge cases that happen so infrequently that or never that they've never been prepared for. And so I think that I think the technology is ready now, but I think that the there needs to be some kind of reckoning or acknowledgement that like, hey, there's still going to be accidents. Um, our roads will will not be perfect. And you know, this will be an eventuality that there will be no car accidents, but we're not there yet. And this, this is going to be a step. Which is really interesting because it's, you know, I think this is true in a lot of areas, although probably this is a bit more interesting case where the technology is not the issue, right? It's really around public policy, public perception, a lot of the other human factors, like how do you bring that technology into the human world? But what is such an interesting one? Because I mean, I'm sure the, dis- the difference between, you know, 0.99 and 0.999 can be measured in real human lives. And, you know, that's a, it's an interesting way. I think there's a lot of discussion about where, how that technology affects human lives, but I appreciate your perspective on that. I mean, you know, what are you most excited about? Like, what are some of the things that you're seeing kind of being, uh, having a window seat to the future of the world in this regard? What are the things that get you most excited? Um, I mean, super excited about the move to electric. And so when you think about cleaner and how much our cars contribute to greenhouse gases and climate change, being able to eliminate that contribution is definitely within our grasp. Um, And we can do that from every single place along the technology or transportation stack. And whether that's, you know, marine and train and cars and trucks and planes, we can do all of that and we can make that climate neutral. So super excited about that piece. We already talked a little bit about safety, um, but I think some of the interesting things, and and while we could debate whether this is a good thing for society, we're moving toward same-day delivery. Uh, we're moving toward, I'm, I need to buy a pair of headphones and I want it within an hour. And you know, like that is going to be an expectation. And how do we do that? And do we drive these class two trucks around, you know, and and um, these UPS trucks or these, you know, even the Amazon prime vans around um or do we do that on bike or do we do that by a little robot or do we do this like what is the form factor that gives us those goods what does that last mile logistics look like and it's a significant number of companies that we've looked at and invested in recently through trucks venture capital has been in that last mile logistics and how do you make that happen how do you make it safer how do you make it cleaner how do you make it faster how do you make it more efficient and i think it's a fascinating optimization problem and there's about 12 different ways that we've invested in that are all like kind of orthogonal to each other because we don't know how this place is we don't 
don't know how it's going to shape out. Sure. Gosh, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm drowning in cardboard, especially during COVID. You know, everything comes from Amazon. I, you know, I know the Amazon drivers by name. Actually, there's so many of them now. I don't even, I can't keep track of it. And it's such a challenge. You know, I mean, it, it's so convenient. And yet there are, you know, secondary effects. I'm glad to see Amazon move to these sprinter vans, which are cleaner. And, you know, you hear about UPS eliminating left turns and optimizations and things like that. But it's clear that there's a long way to go. There's a lot of opportunity there. Yes, you're getting a lot of packages, but this is the least amount of packages that you'll ever get in the rest of your life. Wow. I hadn't even thought about that. I'm going to need a bigger recycling bin. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, my wife was like, oh, we need to really cut down on this. And I'm like, it's not going that direction. Like, we need to have a staging area of this is where the boxes come in. And these are where the, you know, the returns go out. Like, that will just be like part of houses and apartments is like staging areas. And it's the new mudroom. It's the new mudroom. Exactly right. It's not the dog that comes in and needs to be cleaned off. It's the boxes that come in and, you know, need to, to sit there and be unboxed. Then that's how I preface this with like, we could debate whether this is a good thing or not but like this is where we're headed and there's no slowing this train down and so this is just going to happen more and more and more the headphones that you could have waited a week for like you're not going to wait more than a couple of hours yeah i gotta tell you just funny in terms of my own psychology i've been building a lithium phosphorus battery for my trailer but i ordered some of the cells via aliexpress and so i've been waiting for 65 days and i'm scratching my eyes out waiting every day I come home and I'm like, I wonder if it's here now. And of course, the tracking information isn't there. And yet at the same token, I ordered all of my groceries from Whole Foods, you know, my kombucha delivery this morning, and it shows up in like an hour. And so it's just, you know, my point is, I'm a living example of that. And we've been trained to think that, you know, to know that stuff can be delivered in such a short period of time. And, and it will just be expectation. And it will be such a disappointment when we have to wait four hours for the kombucha. Yes, I know. Which is, again, I, I'm with you. I'm not sure that that's necessarily great for society. But if we're heading in that direction, how do we make it safer? If we're heading in that direction, how do we make it cleaner? Um, if we're heading in that direction, how do we make this thing more equitable and if we can? And so those are the types of things that we're that we're looking at and thinking about. Which is wonderful. It's one of the, you know, one of the reasons, well, many reasons why I really appreciate you as a human. And it, which is a really good segue, you know, into you're a very values-driven individual, right? You care deeply about a lot of things, Jeff. And I'm curious, what was the inspiration for getting into uh, philanthropy? Tell me, you know, let's give a little background on you know, shocks.org, what you're doing on the philanthropic side. Yeah, so my wife has always been a huge proponent of giving. And very early on, we gave to a lot of nonprofits. And what I would call early stage nonprofits, which is probably something of like, hey, you've been around for 10 or 20 years, which is early stage um, in a nonprofit life. And and so these aren't, you know, massive Red Cross, you know, type of organizations, but very small ones that are kind of like the long tail of trying to solve problems in the world where government isn't and some of these large organizations are, are failing. And I saw because of the view that I had, I saw the similarities around giving to early stage nonprofits and investing in early stage startups and how it's very founder driven um, and how it's like very like connect connecting with the vision and connecting with like kind of their go to market and like their product and the the need and how how it fits and there was a lot of analysis that my wife was doing that was matching perfectly in our angel investments 
And so that was like kind of an, an interesting insight. And then thinking about uh, nonprofit founders in the same kind of entrepreneurial vein as, as um, startup startup founders, um, which of course they're exactly the same in terms of drive and um, conviction and, and all of that, and courage to be able to start something. And so there was an interesting similarity there and kind of patterns that we saw. And so we started becoming more active kind of in that. I joined Battery Powered, which is a social club here, but has a, the philanthropic arm of a social club. And it was kind of introduced to new themes of like, hey, we were trying to address the challenges of homelessness within you know, San Francisco. And like, here are the you know, 12 nonprofits that are doing that. And we voted collectively as kind of a donor circle as to like, which of these nonprofits like, can we support and, and help move forward. And so as part of that donor circle. And then another kind of simultaneous kind of thought or thread was that I've been fortunate to be involved with some startups that have created a few billionaires. And there's an interesting challenge um, when you have a spike in wealth, a step function in wealth of like, how do you all of a sudden start to give and give right and give with conviction and, and know even where to give? And I started this idea a, a while ago around what if we created this um, donor circle fund where we asked the founders that we have back put in 1% of their founder shares into this donor circle. And say we get 15 of those um, founders to do that. And if any of those founders had an exit, we would take that 1%, it would create, uh, generate cash, we would equally distribute it across all 15 members. And we would help each of those members find a nonprofit that matched their particular interest. And so if we had a large enough group, not too large, but just the right size, and if we had this kind of asymmetric thing that happens within startups where some are wildly successful and most fail, we took this kind of portfolio approach. Might there be two or three or four exits across the period of, say, four or five or six years where each of those 15 founders could practice Philanthropy. It was a crazy idea. We talked to a whole bunch of lawyers and everyone that we talked to said that you can't do that. And um, yet again, I kind of ran into this moment where people were just like, you're insane. This isn't going to work. Like, why, why are you doing this? Quit wasting your time. And I was like, no, I, I think I stumbled upon something here. And I found a lawyer that wasn't um, going to tell me no, but was going to, to figure out how to make it happen. And so we created a nonprofit and we had a pledge, but it wasn't just a simple like, hey, I, I pinky promise to do this 1% later on, but rather an actual contract, an actual agreement of here is 1% shares. And we had, um, we went out and we got 15 members. And it took a while. Um, I had like my pitch started off at about two hours, but I finally got it down to about 15 minutes and I just gave it to you now and it took about three minutes. And so I think I'm getting even better. And over that time, people kind of got it. You know, they, they wanted, you know, startup founders want to give, they want to contribute, they want to give back, um, but they don't have any time to volunteer and they don't have any cash to donate. What do they have? They have equity and they have equity that are, is either going to be worth a lot or is going to be worth nothing. And so what if you took that equity and then basically diversified it across a whole bunch of other startup founders? And then you would basically be trading that 1% for like part of like 
a fund where everyone agreed to donate money if something positive happened. It turned out that that was good idea and the members loved it. And we've now moved close to a million dollars into nonprofits like through that. We've had our second exit. There's looking like the third exit will be potentially an IPO. So it could be the, the biggest exit that we have across those members. And so super excited about that. And then I had the idea of like, well, what if this was white labeled for other venture funds? And so, you know, could another venture fund say, hey, I want to offer this to our founders as well? And that's what we're trying to do. Gosh, Jeff, I just really love this idea on so many levels. I mean, the fact that, you know, you're tapping into the intrinsic motivation of entrepreneurs to give back to their community, but then also recognizing the limitations of what they have and talking to them at a time where, like you said, this this thing that they do have to give right now is pretty much worth you know, nothing. I mean, it's worth the paper that it's written on, but it could be something huge in the future. And it's a really interesting way to do that. And then also helping them get a taste of what it feels like to give for they were the one that necessarily had the huge exit. I mean, that teaches people how to be philanthropists, that keeps them engaged in the community. And it just, again, um, it's a regenerative business model. Like, again, <laughs> you know, you're helping create a whole new set of philanthropists out of these amazing founders. I just I just love this model across the board. Giving's really hard. You know, do you give locally or do you give globally? Do you fix immediate problems by giving someone a sandwich? Or do you go after policies that might be able to cure hunger in your city, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now? Is it the environment that we care more about now or is it people that we care more about? Is it the people that from a background that was struggling, like what a background that we grew up in that we know and can recognize? Or is it a different type of part of the community that we need and have recognized that needs help? And like, I mean, those are just four, but there's like at least eight or nine different axes that we've identified. And what I want to do through this is to be able to have people practice and realize that like, well, maybe I said that because that's what I thought other people wanted to hear. But what I really went deeply attracted to, what I really convicted to helping is this other thing over here. There is no bad philanthropy. Well, maybe there's probably some bad philanthropy, but there is nothing, you know, like there's like giving is, and we can't decide whether is someone giving a sandwich now or trying to fix policies to cure hunger later. We can't weigh those collectively, but you know, in your heart, like what resonates with you. And that's, I think, what's super important because what I'm hoping is that each of these founders, if they were to become billionaires, they know what's important to them. They know what to give. They write checks with conviction because this is going to make them, they're going to feel satisfied and they know that they're going to have an impact that resonates at the highest level of them individually. And you help them at a time you know, to figure this out. I mean, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Effective Altruism Project. Sam Harris is a big fan of this. It's a really interesting. If, you have, if you're not familiar with Effective Altruism, it's definitely worth checking out. But, you know, there's also now these groups that come in and advise, you know, high net worth people. How do you maximize your dollars? And so I would imagine in your circle, you have a gathering. You can bring people in to help educate on what are the best ways to educate or to, to, to give that are aligned with you and that have the maximum impact. And so you, you know, you, as a group, you kind of get this collective knowledge that you bring forward. So it, it's such a cool model. And I'm, you know, I love the fact that it's already working on top of that, which is amazing. The fact that you're going to white label it for other venture funds, I think that's a real opportunity to, um, to bring to other communities. I mean, right now in our community, we're looking at 
I mean, it's small potatoes relative to the valley, but there's going to be a pretty significant influx of new capital from federal government and the SSPCI world that will, you know, leverage up investor dollars probably five to 10x. So it's going to be real money in the community. And I love the idea of at the same time that we're talking about investing, how can we start talking about giving? And so, you know, I definitely would, as this, as you put some more uh, frame around what the white label looks like, I'd definitely love to uh, introduce you to some people locally and see if we can't uh, tap into that that philanthropic spirit here in our own community. I would, I would love to. And I think that there's, you know, Reno has this great community and the great culture there and strong in those bonds. And I think that the ability to be able to say this is a cohort of founders that believe in each other, that share these certain things and want to be able to celebrate each other's success and to basically to help them like give each other's money, you know, back to nonprofits in the community. I think all of that is absolutely beautiful. Absolutely. And we, you know, we already tap into that intrinsic motivation, you know, in terms of our, in our own ecosystem, whether that's a founder drinks that are hosted or other people just taking calls and doing those things. I mean, that, that already exists. You just have figured out a way to amplify it and put it and really, um, you know, bring it to the next level by bringing in the success that can then be shared across the board, which I think is just a brilliant. So I just want to summarize here. You've, you know, rocked to the top of the law world. <laughs> you've got two funds and now you've created this amazing and unique philanthropic endeavor uh, and you're quite young. So what's on the horizon? What, what, what are you going to tackle next? What's your yeah, next it's... idea that's going to be insane that's going to rock it? Most of these ideas I had when I was probably about seven or eight years ago, I just kind of filled a journal with a whole bunch of ideas and iterated on that for a while. And so I think I need to, to go into the woods and with a journal and figure out what the next decade or two holds. Um, a lot of what I'm doing now was, was really dreamt about years ago, a decade ago. And some of these things are wildly more successful than I could have ever imagined. And that just says like, okay, go back into the woods and bring the journal and figure out what's next. Well, I have no doubt that whatever you dream up or whatever series of things you dream up will be wildly successful. And I just have to say, Jeff, it's just a just a real honor to call you a friend and a brother. We've been we've known each other for a long time, and it's just been so fun to watch you create and, and be part of your life through these past 15 years. Thank you, Doug. And thanks for being a huge part of it. There's been an enormous amount of inspiration and that I have been able to appreciate from the group that we belong in and also from you specifically and, and your friendship. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Well, if somebody wants to connect with you, what's the best way for them to find? Yeah, there's um, two ways. If there's something that we could help on on the patent side, Jeff, J-E-F-F at shocks.com and that's S-C-H-O-X.com. And if you got a transportation startup and you're early stage and it's safer, cleaner, or more accessible, um, we'd love to hear from you at jeff at trucks.vc. It's trucks, T-R-U-C-K-S dot V-C. That's great. Well, thank you. Thank you again, Jeff, for your time. It's just been a real pleasure to talk with you today. Pleasure is mine. Thank you, Doug. Mm-hmm.